0: Greetings to uh, the 10 of us here in the building and to all of you who are, are with us in the virtual way that we've, uh, we've learned to experience and I guess both value and feel frustration about. It's not perfect, but we are able to connect in ways that, frankly, we would not have been able to, not all that many years ago. In the providence of God... Our journey through the first epistle of Peter uh, today comes to the text in which he talks about the relationship between church and state. And it comes on the very first Sunday of the new form of lockdown here in Ontario, when we are limited to providing this service for all of you uh, with only 10 of us here in the building. So we consider this text now at a time when Christians around us, we included, are thinking about church and state in ways that we haven't normally done. Now, that's a good thing because it means that by and large, in our lifetime, we, we have not had to feel the tension of church and state in quite the way that we feel it now with restrictions on our gathering. But the tension between church and state is nothing brand new. It goes right back to the very beginning of the church. And in the book of Acts chapter 17, Luke recounts for us Paul and his team arriving in Thessalonica. to to preach the good news about Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, beginning in the synagogue and then proceeding on to the rest of the city. And what we find there is that some of the men of the city brought together a a crowd to oppose what Paul and his team were doing. And, And what they declared was, These people are preaching that there is another king besides Caesar. In other words, they are fomenting rebellion. They are insurrectionists. They are subversives. And indeed, Paul and his team, and we who share their commitment to Jesus, the risen Lord, do acknowledge another king. We we acknowledge a king beyond any of the rulers here on planet Earth. That that doesn't mean that we are insurrectionists seeking to overthrow the government, but we do acknowledge that Christ and his authority stand above all human government. And in in our time and place right now, we who who seek to be faithful disciples of Christ, affirming the full authority of Holy Scripture and seeking to obey it, feel the tension between church and the wider culture, including the state, in ways that probably go beyond what any of us have experienced in our own lifetime. Um, I don't have to recount all of that for you. All it takes is Reading the newspaper if any of I don't know, if you're younger than I am, you probably don't read a newspaper, you probably read it on screen somewhere. But you read the news or you hear the news on radio or TV. You you talk to people around you, you understand the distinction between the values of Christ and the values of much of the culture around us. So we feel that tension. But in many ways, the greater problem that we confront right now as I speak is that the tension has moved from church versus culture inside the church. And in our people group, in our subculture, we now have significant tension over the right way for the church to respond to government actions during the COVID pandemic. In fact, the tension is great among us and it is getting greater. This past Friday morning, I was on a Zoom call with a former student of mine, uh, an outstanding pastor at a church in Ontario, because he wanted to dialogue about what might be the most effective way to deal with the tensions within his own church. This is a wonderful church, and he's a great pastor. But among the leadership team, among the board members in that church, there is a spectrum of opinion about how the church ought to respond to the current restrictions. And we're all aware, I think, that, that some churches, some pastors in, in Canada have said, enough is enough, we have to meet as a church, we're not going to obey the restrictions. And so the knowledge of all that means the issue is alive and well within our churches among believers within families, and, and we aren't all presently on the same page. That's a real tension. It's a real test of the unity of God's people. And so we need to think about what Scripture does indeed say about this matter. And so today, as we're thinking through 1, Timothy, 1 Peter, we come to 1 Peter 2, chapters 13 to 17. And so here, Peter, who's been addressing his readers as exiles and sojourners and pilgrims, addresses the whole matter of exiles and citizens. Because we are citizens of two kingdoms. How do we navigate that? Well, here's what he says beginning at verse 13 of chapter 2. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Live as free people, But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So the first point that Peter makes is simply this, that submission to governing authorities is our normal pattern. Submit yourselves. That's the normal pattern. Are there there some exceptions? Well, well, yes, and we'll come to that in a few minutes. But our default mindset, he says, has to be that of respecting the governing authorities, submitting to them. Now, he makes it plain that our, our submission to government is to all forms of government. In fact, his language is quite interesting. Uh, The the language, as he wrote it in Greek, is submit yourselves to to every human creation. Now, it's, it's creation in the context of governing, obviously, but it's a way of saying God has not revealed that there must be one specific pattern or form or structure of government in every nation state in the world. It can take various forms. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an American Canadian, dual citizen, so I've lived on both sides of the border, longer in Canada than in the USA now. Um, but I'm fascinated by, by the distinctions between those two forms of government. The American uh, congressional form with an elected president, who appoints a cabinet of people who are not elected versus a parliamentary democracy like Canada's, in which the the governing cabinet, the cabinet, the executive, is a subset of the legislature. They're all elected. So we have prime minister. We don't have a president. In fact, we don't directly elect a prime minister. We elect a parliament. And out of that parliament, a prime minister is chosen who represents a party, who can, who can command the, uh, the respect and, and the assent of the House of Commons. Differing systems. Uh, does God spell out a particular form that it must take? No. Peter is saying multiple forms of a government are possible. Whatever form you're living under, it's designed by human beings seeking to bring order, so respect it. And he says you respect it at every level. So every form, and, but then to the emperor, the king, over the Roman Empire, the supreme authority, or to governors, lower, lesser magistrates who are sent by him to carry out punishment of evildoers and commend those who do right, at multiple lower levels. And so we recognize multiple levels of government, federal, provincial, municipal. They all have their their distinct flavor, their distinct responsibility, all to be respected, and, and Peter says to be submitted to. Why do we do it? Because, he says, governing structures... Imperfect though they may be, carried out by very imperfect sinners, nonetheless provide order in society, prevent chaos, anarchy. They do provide order. So he says in verse uh, 14 that they're, they're sent to punish wrongdoers, commend those who do right. You have the same kind of thing Said by the Apostle Paul back in Romans 13, the passage that we, that we heard read to us earlier in the service. Where Paul can say, Those who rule are in fact servants of God, they are avengers of justice on God's behalf, who don't bear the sword in vain. They, they have coercive power because coercive power is necessary in order to maintain order in society. Laws have to be enforced. And so, government is there to prevent all of us simply becoming the Wild West, and everyone does what's right in his own eyes. I still remember the year 1976, the year of the Bicentennial back in the USA. I was a pastor in Indiana at the time. Conservative Christians sort of got their juices about politics reinvigorated that year. And I still remember this one book that I received in the mail, sent free of charge to pastors everywhere, I guess, arguing for a particular kind of conservative political philosophy as obviously the way that all Christians must think with a great emphasis on personal freedom and lack of restrictions. And at the end of the book, it said, we ought to do it the biblical way, just like the end of the book of Judges says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. I I sat there and thought to myself, whoa, (laughs) did this guy not read all that there is in the book of Judges that precedes that? That is hardly a statement of ought, the way it ought to be. It was a statement of, unfortunately, the way it was. So, government provides order. And beyond that, Peter says, I want you to submit yourselves to the governing authorities on account of the Lord, for the Lord's sake. In other words, You're doing it not because the human authorities are are in any way really ultimate, but because God, who is the ultimate authority, has called you to live peaceably and, and lawfully and within the governing patterns. So the Lord commands it, and it's for the Lord's benefit. There are no exceptions stated here. Are there any exceptions to this? Well, if we read the Bible as a whole with at least one eye open, then we will certainly come to the conclusion, yes, there are exceptional cases. Sometimes governments cross the line and and call us to do that, which is an unjust violation of God's will. And in that case, we rightly disobey In other words, the command of Romans 13 or the command of 1 Peter 2 is not intended as some kind of a strict moral absolute that says, you must simply do what the government says without asking any questions and there is never the possibility of disobedience. No, that's not it. Our default mindset is to obey. But there are lines that can be crossed. Think within Scripture, for example, back to the book of Daniel. So Daniel tells us the story about Daniel and his friends and, and, and exiles from Judah who are in Babylon. Now, Daniel and his friends actually achieved some level of responsibility. They were respected within Babylon. But in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sets up an image and says, everyone's got to bow down to it and the faithful Jews refuse. It's idolatry. It's worshiping false God. Cannot do that no matter what. And so you have this this wonderful conversation of, of the three Hebrew young men with the king when they say, look, we cannot obey that. And they say, we're confident that our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we want to obey that. And then later in the story, in Daniel 6, we have a new king, Darius the Mede. Uh, the Medo-Persian empire is now taken over, the, over Babylon. And some of Darius' uh, assistants resent Daniel. And so they get the king to issue an edict that says, no one has the right to pray to anyone other than the king no other god so what does daniel do follows his custom of praying three times a day and he does it by an open window open disobedience daniel could have he could have stayed away from the window so nobody saw him but he recognized Idolatry was being commanded. He was being forbidden to pray to the true and living God, could not obey that edict. God spared him, just like he spared the three back in chapter 3. The book of Revelation envisions a time at the end of this age when when there will be a, a world empire, emperor we call Antichrist, the beast in Revelation 13, who will demand that the world bow down to him and not to Christ. And so the picture of the book of Revelation is at the end of the age, you you have a duality. It's a binary. You either take the mark of the beast or you have the mark of Christ, the lamb. Disobedience will be called for. I have, I have a strong suspicion also that civil disobedience by faithful believers is definitely on the horizon for us in Canada because of Bill C-6. Probably almost all of you have heard of Bill C-6, called a ban on conversion therapy. But, but the bill actually is much broader than that. And effectively, it appears, it will criminalize teaching and counseling others to say, you must obey the pattern of biblical sexuality. You must say no to your homosexual desire. You must, you must accept the fact that God has made you as male or female that may become criminalized. And if it does, those of us who have the task of teaching God's truth, frankly, will have no choice but to disobey the wrong law on that point. And, and even though, as some of you know, and as will become clear, I'm on the side of those who say we should Live within the temporary current restrictions. If, if Bill C-6 becomes law and is interpreted in that way, I'd be happy to lead the charge in disobeying that law. Time will tell. There are exceptions, but our default mindset is live within the, the governing rules, the laws, as far as possible. Now, this is not an incidental matter, as Peter will say here in verses 15 and 16. There he will make the point that in seeking to live as good citizens of our nation, the reputation of Christ and the gospel is at stake. See, his point is, it's God's will that by doing good, He's obviously referring back to what he has just said, namely living as a good citizen, seeking the common good, living within the laws. By doing that, you silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. In other words, good citizens, Christians as good citizens, can deflect the false charges often made against the church. We saw in that reference I made back to Acts 17. One of the charges in the first century was that the church acknowledges a ruler beyond Caesar. They're subversives. They're insurrectionists. They want to overthrow the government. First thing you know, they're going to, once they they grow in numbers a bit, they're going to get arms and they're going to fight. It wasn't true, but that was a charge. In the early church, they, they occasionally charged Christians of being guilty of cannibalism because of the language of the Lord's Supper. They accused them of being intent on destroying families. They were anti-Roman. And, and occasionally we hear the same kind of thing directed at us in contemporary Canada that were really un-Canadian. A few years ago, Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Harper uh, went on a trip to Israel and, and invited religious leaders, uh, a certain number of them, to go along on that trip. Uh, Steve Jones, president of our Fellowship of Churches, went on that trip. While they were there, one the, well, I think it was at was it the Globe and Mail, I think, uncovered the fact that one of the religious leaders taken on the trip by the Prime Minister was a pastor in an AGC church in the greater Ottawa area who had actually, you're not going to believe this, who had actually preached a sermon from Romans 1, that said that homosexual activity was sinful. Yeah, I know it's a shock, but they actually uncovered that. And they blew the whistle on him and said, how how can this be that the prime minister would take along, on this trip to Israel, someone so un-Canadian, someone who doesn't share Canadian values? As if, to share Canadian values, you have to believe that everything that's legal in Canada is therefore good. I mean, the government is into all kinds of criticism of smoking and the tobacco industry, but it's perfectly legal. It's not un-Canadian to say, we know it's legal, but we really don't think it's a good thing. And yet, all it takes is to, is to violate progressive dogmas about sexuality and we're thought to be un-Canadian. So you see, there, there's the, the tendency for governing structures to see the subculture of faithful disciples of Christ to submit to him as king as a threat. And so Peter is saying, frankly, we need to bend over backwards to make it clear that we are not insurrectionists. We're not out to destroy the order of society. But we must obey Christ. And so by, by submitting as far as possible to the governing authorities, Peter says you can, you can silence some of the, that ignorant criticism. And he makes the point in verse 16, we are indeed free people, ultimately responsible to Christ. But we must use our freedom rightly. We are God's slaves. We must obey Him, including His command through the apostles that we submit to governing authorities as far as possible. In other words, you're not really free with regard to some activity unless you're free to refrain from that activity. And so while, while we, we do recognize our ultimate authority is the Lord in heaven, and, and we have a kind of freedom then, we can freely, responsibly choose to limit our liberty in a, in a way that cares for others, for, for the good of everybody around us and for the unity of God's people. In in this time of internal tension, when pastors and other Christian leaders and believers generally have come to contradictory conclusions about the way we ought to respond to government, we all need to reread and meditate on Romans 14, where Paul says, there are times when Christ's followers come to Contradictory conclusions. They don't have the same conscience about particular issues. And and those are issues where it's understandable how people might arrive at differing conclusions. And we need to give each other space. And we also need to, to recognize that when I think about you, I need to think liberty. When I think about me, I need to think love and responsibility, including a willingness to give up my liberty. So you see, the world is watching the church. And, and we need to ask, how do our actions commend Christ and the gospel or turn people off? I live in Waterloo Region, and over the last few months, much of the focus about this debate in Waterloo Region has focused on Trinity Bible Chapel in Waterloo. I'm not here to dump on them. The um, pastoral staff of the church have all been students of mine, and so we're friends. We've come to different conclusions on this point. And, and I have to say that back in January, when all this was very much in the news, constantly in the news, TV, newspaper, radio, I, I mean, I, I read the Waterloo Region Record every day. I'm an old guy, so I still read the newspaper every day. The letters to the editor were almost uniformly critical of what Trinity Bible Chapel was doing. Now, my friends there tell me, yeah, but we attracted some people to the church who appreciated what we were doing in defying the restrictions. And I understand that. I don't doubt that. Anything we do will attract some people. But it was pretty obvious to me that I, I don't think there was a single letter to the editor that said, Bravo, they're standing up for our, our freedom. So we have to ask, are are we using our freedom in a way that that turns people toward Christ or away from him? Now we're thinking especially about actions, but Peter makes it clear here, our attitude. Is as important as our actions. And so in verse 17, he makes the point that every person, every human being, even unlikable authorities, every human being deserves respect. So the the way he puts it is show proper respect to everyone, love, the brotherhood your fellow believers fear god honor the emperor actually as he wrote it in greek he uses the same word for honor at the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse so what we what we see here is we fear god uniquely our relationship to god is different from our relationship to any mere human being so we fear god in a way that we don't fear other humans and we love the family of God. We love the community of believers in a special way, just as we are called to love our family by blood and genetic origin in a special way. But we're also called to love our neighbors. And so we treat everyone with proper respect. And we're called to honor the emperor, honor the governing authorities. Now, sometimes we ask, why in the world would I honor and respect governing authorities who are not believers and who seem intent on countering the church and the gospel? There are multiple reasons, probably. One is because every human being is made in the image of God and therefore of great value and worthy of respect. Beyond all that, and we'll probably look at this in a little more detail in in a couple of weeks. Paul, back in Titus chapter 3, tells Titus what to teach the believers on the island of Crete in a very pagan society about how they ought to live, And he says, teach them to live in a way that's humble and respectful and kind toward everybody. And then he explains why. Because when we were God's enemies, God acted in kindness and grace and mercy toward us. If you want to be God-like, godly, then, then you need to see people made in God's image, as valuable, worthy of respect, and potentially children of God by his grace and mercy. And so Peter says, check your attitude toward the people around you. Peter would say to us, I think, when, when you are speaking about Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau or local leaders, public health officials, when you're speaking about them or when you're posting on social media to say something about them, about the government, stop and ask, am I speaking with respect? Am I Am I I showing memes in my post that I ought to show, or ones of which I should be ashamed? Think about it. And so, given what Peter says, we have to ask, what what does all this look like in our time and place right now? In April 2021 in Ontario. Well, it surely means we think about the common good, about love and concern for all of our neighbors, and, and that's complex because we have multiple interests. We, we, have, we have physical health. We also have livelihood. We have mental health. We have, we have all kinds of issues at stake. We need to think about all of those. And Peter would say to us, you need to submit as far as possible. Now notice, that does not mean that every decision the government makes, every restriction imposed is the right one. It doesn't mean it is never right to challenge government restrictions and other decisions. It means you challenge respectfully while complying. There's no no contradiction between complying with the law and challenging whether the law is the right law. That's what democracy is, in fact, all about. But, But at the heart of it all for the church is we're commanded to meet. The pattern of the church is to gather. We gather for important purposes. How can we not meet in our normal way. Hebrews 10.25 is always brought up as the proof text, not abandoning the gathering of yourselves together. And that's an important truth. But we need to understand, I would suggest, we have there a lack of, we have in the Bible, a lack of any detailed and highly specific command that says, you must meet at these times in this way, the whole ecclesia, the whole church must meet at one time, and so on. Within Hebrews 10.25, it's not even clear that that weekly gathering on the Lord's Day is the specific focus. It may be the primary focus, but we know from the book of Acts, the church met publicly and from house to house, met in various kinds of contexts. If 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 you try to go back to Sabbath law in the Old Testament, you don't get much help. First of all, because Paul says in Colossians 2, Sabbath law was a shadow of the reality to come. Not the enduring reality, that's Christ. But also, in in Sabbath law, there's there's virtually nothing said about gathering. It's about what you don't do on the Sabbath, essentially. Now, Hebrews 10.25 does exhort us to meet, but we have to recognize The writer there says, you meet for a purpose, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another, to love and good deeds, to enable one another to go on living as faithful disciples of Christ. And when you read the verses following verse 25, we find the writer expressing his concern that some who are abandoning the gathering may be indicating that they are abandoning Christ and the gospel. We aren't talking there about a a willingness to freely live within restrictions temporarily. Let me make one other suggestion. In the current debate, a lot of it has revolved around the whole idea of essential services. And I understand why, why people want to say how can you not describe the gathering of the church as an essential service? I think what we need to say there is essential, what is essential, always depends on the context. And so, as I've said actually in print and on radio, is the church essential to God's purposes and the world in one sense? Yes. But our gathering as the whole church is not essential in exactly the same way that uh, supermarkets that provide food for us to physically live are essential. You can't live well and faithfully if you don't live. So I would just suggest if you can turn the debate away from asking about essential, that might be a wise move. So I think Peter shows us from Scripture here in his apostolic authoritative teaching, we must, we must indeed respect and submit to governing authorities as far as possible, recognizing there are lines beyond which we may not go. I think in our present situation, we can live within the, re- the temporary restrictions. But none of it's simple. It's not neat and tidy. Are we sometimes called to challenge or even disobey governing authorities? Yes, of course. But Scripture makes it plain that should not be our first thought. In fact, our first thought probably should be to listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and recognize we need to pray for those who govern us. Think about the challenges they face. They have multiple legitimate interests they have to balance. They have pressure on them from every side, from individuals and groups. They recognize that whatever decision they make, they are going to disappoint some people. And they, they get publicly, regularly insulted. And sometimes they even get death threats. That, that's what serving in public office is like. If we care about them, then we ought to obey the apostles' teaching and pray for them. Let's do that now. Father, we recognize that living faithfully in our time and place is never simple. Uh, we experience tension about the right way to do it even now. But we do recognize, as you have taught us, that you, you have ordained that there be governing authorities who maintain order, and you call us to respect them and to pray for them. And so we do pray for those who govern us at every level. We pray that you will enable them to to recognize and affirm that they are accountable to you, to act in the interest of public justice and what is good and right. We pray that you will draw them to faith, that they might seek to honor Christ as Lord in all they do. But even if they don't come to that point, we pray that you will give them a sense of what is right and good and just. Grant them wisdom to know it and courage to practice it. We ask this through Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.